Now, good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to Hudson Institute. I'm Seth Cropsey, a senior fellow here. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us on what Washingtonians call a cold day. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, so it's, it's just the regular winter. Um, China's connection with the vast area that we now call the Indo-Pacific goes back centuries. The third Ming emperor began a war to subjugate Vietnam and from 1405 to 1433 sent naval expeditions into the furthest reaches of the Indo-Pacific uh, from Indonesia to and through the Malacca Straits to the northern Bay of Bengal, down India's east coast to what we call Sri Lanka today, and up the subcontinent's west coast to the Strait of Hormuz, to the mouth of the Arabian Gulf, and to the Bab el Mandeb, and in fact to the Horn of Africa. The commander of these voyages uh, was Admiral Zheng He a patron of the emperor. And uh, he's been enjoying a revival of popularity in the PRC today. There are statues of him in major cities throughout the country, for example, in Nanjing, very prominent. China's, Chinese civilization's familiarity with an interest in the Indo-Pacific didn't begin in the past few years. Although it includes Japan and claims in the East China Sea, the PRC's interest in the Indo-Pacific is concentrated on the South China Sea, which is the hinge of the sea lines of communication that link the West Pacific with the Indian Ocean and, of course, Middle Eastern oil. PRC has focused on its illegal claims of sovereignty over the South China Sea, to support these claims, Beijing, among other measures, has built and armed islands, initiated disputes with neighboring states whose internationally recognized exclusive economic zones the PRC refuses to acknowledge, and continues to expand its naval and its amphibious capabilities. Taiwan has chosen a different path. Under President Tsai, Taipei's new southbound policy seeks to increase exchanges and cooperation with 18 states in South and Southeast Asia and Oceania. This new southbound policy is consistent with and parallel to President Trump's new national security strategy which speaks directly to the importance of greater U.S. cooperation with South Korea, uh, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, and India. The same U.S. document addresses Taiwan in particular, noting that, and I'm quoting here, we will maintain our strong ties with Taiwan, unquote. Interestingly, while the new national security document also mentions the One China policy, it leaves out 
the usual State Department modifying language about the three communiques, that is, the ones that speak to U.S. relations with the PRC. Instead, the new national security document mentions only the Taiwan Relations Act, the 1979 Act of Congress, whose teeth are set in the requirement, quote, to provide Taiwan with arms of a defensive character and to consider any effort to determine the future of Taiwan by other than peaceful means, including by boycotts or embargoes, a threat to the peace and security of the Western Pacific and of grave concern to the United States. That's a quote. Our subject this afternoon is Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific. Like the Trump administration's view of the Indo-Pacific, Taiwan's southbound policies seek greater cooperation in the region. Taiwan and Japan are working to augment regional trade relations. Taiwanese companies have increased their investments in Myanmar, Vietnam, Indonesia, and are seeking opportunities in the Philippines. Taiwanese firms have made substantial investments in India over the past few years. Swifter visa application processing for selected Southeast Asian states has increased tourism and encouraged an influx of foreign students. And thinking about the contrast between China and Taiwan's approach, I was reminded of uh, an old fable about a, a, a contest between the north wind and the sun. The object of the contest was to get a traveler to remove his cloak. The north wind blows very hard, and the harder he blows, the more the traveler pulls his cloak around him. When it's the sun's turn, he smiles, he shines, and the air turns, turns as warm as summer. The man takes off his cloak. China has chosen the north wind's approach to its neighbors. Taiwan has chosen the sun's. We will have the pleasure this afternoon of listening to the insights of three eminently qualified observers who will discuss these questions in greater detail. Ashley Tellis, immediately to my left here, is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is one of the United States' foremost experts on India and has served as special assistant to President George W. Bush as well as several other senior positions at the State Department. Jamie Fly, next, is a senior fellow and director of the Future of Geopolitics and Asia programs at the German Marshall Fund in the U.S. He advised Senator Rubio very capably on national security and foreign affairs for four years and was the senator's foreign policy advisor during the presidential campaign. He also served on the National Security Council staff during the George W. Bush administration. Eric Brown is also a senior fellow here at Hudson, where he concentrates on Asia and the Middle East with particular emphasis on U.S. security strategy and governance, uh, educational, and political issues in the same regions. Last year, uh, Eric completed a detailed study of U.S. alliances from the Maghreb to India. Um, after our panelists' remarks, uh, we'll have a question period 
and there will be somebody with a microphone who will come around when you're recognized here, from here, and I will say something about this again before the question period, but would you be so good as to identify yourself and your organization if you are connected with one, uh, and also to whom you are addressing the question? Um, thank you, and Ashley, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be back here at Hudson. And of course, it's great to be on a panel with you. I'm going to spend the minutes I have ahead of me uh, talking about the structure of the concept of the Indo-Pacific. And I will end my remarks by raising some questions about the relationship of the concept to Taiwan, Taiwan security, and the impact on the United States. Uh, let me start by just reminding uh, you about President Trump's most recent visit to Asia. There were many things that happened on that visit, but perhaps among the most memorable was his repeated use of the phrase Indo-Pacific, which puzzled many because they didn't understand whether this was simply an exercise in rebranding, something that the Obama administration had toyed with before, or whether this was a genuinely new concept. And in many quarters of Asia, he was actually criticized for it because they thought the president was advertising a form of proto-containment of China. And this was meant to be somehow code for containing China. I think there are many reasons that one can think of for criticizing President Trump for many things. But on this issue, I think the president was actually spot on. And I want to spend a few moments just exploring the concept and the significance of the concept. The unification of the Indian Ocean region and the Pacific region is actually owed to China, not to Donald Trump. It's China that unifies these two ocean spaces because of the way China approaches its interests in Asia at large. The oceans by themselves do not have intrinsic value. Oceans derive their value from how they relate to great power rivalries on land. It's great power rivalries on land that give the oceans their instrumental importance because we don't live on the ocean. We live on land. And so the oceans are important insofar as they fit into a larger geography of geopolitical competition on land. And it's China's choices in the last seven years that have res resulted in the conjunction of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean in ways that were never true before. What has China done? In Pacific Asia, uh, China's rivalry with the United States and Japan and its desire to dominate the Pacific Rim lands for reasons that may be defensive or offensive, they don't matter is what gives the Western Pacific today its importance, because this Chinese desire has led to the creation of a quite expansive naval strategy that is focused on keeping the United States as far away as possible from Asia, weakening the links that the United States has with its allies in order to sever the historic ties that the US had with Pacific Asia so as to create a vacuum that China can dominate. 
In the Indian Ocean, the Chinese calculus is somewhat different. A few years ago, China reached the conclusion that it would no longer rely on the United States Navy to guarantee the security of the sea lanes, and certainly to guarantee the security of its own sea lanes. And therefore, China decided to take over responsibility for protecting its own sea lanes, and towards that end, began to operate in the Indian Ocean for the first time after many, many decades. China's connectivity with the Persian Gulf in Africa only made it even more important for China to begin to operate in the Indian Ocean. And the Chinese effort to build a gigantic Belt and Road only gave the Indian Ocean for the first time a strategic value in terms of China's own calculus. So it's China's choices with respect to the Western Pacific and the Indian Ocean that actually provide a sound justification for treating these two oceans of the world as a unified strategic space. And all that Donald Trump has actually done is to recognize that the conjunction of these two ocean spaces is a reality that the United States must come to terms with. Because China is going to be operating equally in the Western Pacific as it will in the Indian Ocean. And if it does so in the years to come, then that creates a strategic reality which imposes certain challenges and certain opportunities for the United States. So the conjunction of the Indo-Pacific, far from being an innovation that the Trump administration came up with, is actually a recognition of an evolving reality that has been in play now for close to a decade. The Obama administration toyed with the notion of the unified Indo-Pacific strategic space. Hillary Clinton, if you remember, in fact, originally coined the concept or used the concept in that famous paper that she wrote in foreign policy. And then there were many debates within the Obama administration which ended up with a decision to sort of treat the two as functionally separate. But Trump has basically accepted reality as it is, which is that these two spaces are going to be deeply interlinked because China's interests are essentially taking it in a, in a manner that will compel it to operate in both these spaces. And the United States is now on the cusp of responding. And the way we are responding, I think, is, has two components. The first is, for the first time, there is an open recognition in the national security strategy that China is a genuine competitor of the United States. And despite the fact that the United States and China will cooperate on many issues, despite the fact that the leaders of these two countries have ended up having a good personal relationship, the fact of the matter is there is a structural contradiction between American ambitions and Chinese ambitions. And the United States has finally fessed up to the fact that China has ambitions that are antithetical to our own, that are aimed at undermining American leadership and primacy in the international system. And therefore, the appropriate American response to China's rise must be a strategy of balancing China. Because only balancing China offers the promise of protecting American primacy, as well as the security of the liberal international order. And so the Indo-Pacific construct must be seen as an American effort to build up 
an Asian partnership, not to contain China, because I think that horse has left the barn, but rather to balance China, preserving those elements of cooperation that can be preserved, while at the same time investing in building the antidotes that will be required for any misuse of Chinese power. And the whole notion of the Indo-Pacific is meant to signal the development of a unified strategy that involves the United States acting in concert with a variety of partners all along the Asian rimlands, from Japan in the Northeast to India in the Southwest. In fact, it is the integration of India in a unified Indo-Pacific strategy that is the most novel element of the strategy. Because prior to the uh, conceptualization of this area as a unified space, the temptation was to think of the Pacific as somehow ending in Southeast Asia. With the elevation of India in our national strategy, we have now conceded the proposition that the Western Pacific actually ends in the Persian Gulf. And that Chinese activities along this entire swath will be activities that have an impact on American interests and that the United States must respond to. So what are the specifics that are involved in developing or in an Indo-Pacific strategy? I think the first uh, element is a commitment to preserving a free and open Indo-Pacific. It's very important that the United States signal that far from leaving Asia, it is going to continue to maintain an Asian political structure that preserves America's vital interests. An open, liberal, economic, and political order throughout the Asian space. That's point number one. The second is a commitment to rebuilding both US military capabilities and the military capabilities of our partners. Because if we rule out containment as a policy option vis-a-vis -vis China, then the only alternative you are left with is to make certain that all the partners on China's periphery are sufficiently capable so as to stand up to any Chinese coercion or any Chinese misuse of power. And so building up both the American capabilities militarily and the capabilities of its partners become a very important component of what an effective Indo-Pacific strategy would be like. The third component would be to focus really on revitalizing our alliances, making certain that they are adequate to the new tasks that lie ahead, and equally importantly, making the investments required to protect US dominance of the commons. What makes the United States a genuine superpower as opposed to just another great power is that the United States is not only powerful in specific areas of the world, but that it has fundamental domination of all the global commons. For the United States to lose its dominance in the commons would essentially relegate it to the role of just another great power. And if we are to protect the liberal international order, then going back to recover our dominance in the commons, whether it be at sea, whether it be in space, whether it be in the electromagnetic spectrum or in the cyber spectrum, becomes absolutely vital. And finally, we have to recast or develop a new strategy for managing the international economy. This is, unfortunately, the missing portion 
of Trump's Indo-Pacific strategy. It is often said that the business of Asia is business. So if we are to stay engaged in Asia as a productive partner, we must find a way of reconnecting ourselves with this very dynamic economic region. And that must mean that the administration must come up with an economic strategy that allows us to participate in what is happening in Asia. So coming up with a new strategy that allows us to connect with the global and regional economic integration that is manifested most clearly in Asia is something that I hope the administration will pay some attention to. And let me tie all this to the issue of Taiwan. One glaring omission in the Indo-Pacific strategy is the role of Taiwan in that strategy. Now, of course, the United States has a very unique and a very privileged relationship with Taiwan. But the traditional view of the relationship with Taiwan is that that relationship is sui generis. We've often talked of it as a unique relationship inherited because of the history of the last 50 odd years. But we have rarely talked or thought of our relationship with Taiwan in the context of a unified Indo-Pacific strategy. And I think one of the tasks that we have to do for the future is to think not just simply of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship as a purely bilateral relationship, but a bilateral relationship that is embedded in this larger architecture that we seek to build with respect to the balancing of China. We have to think of this because we will rely on our Indo-Pacific relationships at a functional level, to be sure. We cannot come to defense, uh, to Taiwan's defense without relying on Japan, without relying possibly on other facilities in Southeast Asia. So maybe it is time to think of Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific not simply in a functional sense, but in a political sense as well. So this is something that I think is, is a task for this administration. The second issue with respect to Taiwan has been to very clearly restate the proposition that protecting the current cross-straits status quo is fundamentally in US interests. And we may need to tweak US policy somewhat to protect that status quo. Thus far, the dominant US approach has been one of ambiguity. We've never been quite clear about whether and under what conditions we would come to Taiwan's assistance. With the rise of Chinese military power, I think it is time to clarify some of that ambiguity and to state more clearly that should Taiwan ever become a victim of Chinese coercion in any form, the United States will be, by law and history, obligated to come to Taiwan's defense. And then the last point that I would make with respect to Taiwan is that the commitments that Seth reminded us of in the Taiwan Relations Act, which is to protect Taiwan's capacity to defend itself, is a commitment that we have faltered on in the last decade. We simply have not kept pace with China's military modernization, where aiding Taiwan with respect to building its defensive capabilities is concerned. And therefore, I hope that in the remaining three years of this administration, we will see a far more concerted effort made to build up Taiwan's defensive capabilities because we would want to do so if for no other reasons than prudence. A Taiwan that cannot defend itself will only impose greater burdens on the US obligation to come to its defense. 
to the degree that Taiwan can defend itself more adequately, the burdens on the United States with respect to aiding Taiwan's defense would be minimized. And so out of sheer self-interest, if not our political commitments to Taiwan, I think we ought to revisit the questions of the pace and the scale of assistance that we ought to offer Taiwan in the next three years before the cross-straits military balance becomes truly hopeless and impossible to remedy. Thank you very much. Ashley, thank you. Jeremy? Great. Uh, thanks, Seth. I'm glad uh, you're hosting this conversation. It's great to be up here with um, Ashley and Eric, two uh, old friends. I agree with everything that Ashley said, so I'll try not to, to repeat, because um, I think there's probably a lot of agreement on this panel, probably very little disagreement. Um, but I'll try to amplify a few things and then talk about uh, my views on why Taiwan has a lot to bring to the table or the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. And for me, when I look at the Indo-Pacific strategy that's being laid out by the administration, that's being discussed by the Japanese and the Indians and others, for me, the key to uh, three words are free and open. I think uh, that is what makes this uh, important. It make, it's what makes it a benefit add beyond the previous conversations. And it's where I think clearly Taiwan fits in so well, given its unique characteristics. The other thing I'll just say up front, as I've, uh, over since I left the, the Senate in the last nine months, traveling uh, quite a bit um, and just talking to our allies and partners around the globe about uh, their perceptions of American power, uh, about the Trump administration followed, uh, following on the Obama administration, my main concern right now about American grand strategy writ large is this growing perception in many quarters of American retreat and American withdrawal. You see that in all of our transatlantic conversations, and I'm at the German Marshall Fund, and we have a lot of transatlantic conversations. Um, our European allies, many of them, uh, despite the fact that we've doubled down on our commitment uh, to partners like Ukraine uh, and our uh, increased assistance to our frontline NATO partners, there is a perception of American re retreat. In the Middle East, I was just in Israel uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the first time in 20 years going to Israel where I heard repeated commentary about American retreat, American withdrawal. Um, some of that's not due to the Trump administration, it's due to our longer-term Syria policy that uh, has existed throughout two administrations. For me, the most important part of this free and open Indo-Pacific strategy and the fact the administration is talking this way is I think if we're gonna be successful in the long run over the next several decades in dealing with the China challenge, we cannot let this growing sense of American retreat uh, creep into our Asia policy. Uh, if that happens, and I fear that you already hear a little bit on the margins, partly because of the economic disengagement that Ashley talked about, I think we and our partners are never going to be able to maintain unity and be successful in guiding the process of China's rise. And that's where free and open, I think, is important, because if it's framed as a free and open Indo-Pacific, um, there's actually a place for China in there in the long run, assuming that China is willing to abide by the rules of the road that are accepted by the other regional uh, players. And so um, I think the framing is important, uh, just first of all, the fact that it's even being discussed, to start that reassurance that needs to happen given the broader trends in American foreign policy over the last 15 years. Um, and so I think it's a good start by the administration in picking up this conversation. I will say, though, uh, and Ashley probably knows the history much better than I, it's amazing how many people you talk to who think they came up with the concept. Uh, you go to Tokyo, they will tell you it was them. The Australians, I think, 
uh, some claim credit. So uh, it's already seen as such a success that everyone wants to get credit uh, for having originated the concept. Um, I think the other important piece is, is uh, Ashley mentioned, the, uh, if, as far as Taiwan is concerned, is Taiwan was left out, essentially, of the, the pivot or the rebalance. It was striking to me as a congressional staffer uh, when I would visit Taiwan, and I would constantly hear this interest in being supportive of the U.S. rebalance, but there was very little engagement, I think, from the Obama administration perspective for fear of uh, angering Beijing, and that is something that fundamentally needs to change. I will say I was heartened by the Taiwan reference in the NSS. However, I, I think clearly the administration needs, I mean, I, I do not give them a pass yet on this. I think they have not yet laid out how Taiwan fits into this Indo-Pacific strategy. My conversations with the administration indicate that I think they realize that they need to do this and there's a willingness to do this. Uh, but that's something that I think needs to happen sooner rather than later, uh, and I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, and obviously, I mean, the opportunity is represented because China, while Taiwan is being a responsible actor and choosing the different path, as Seth uh, referred to, China is going in the opposite direction. Um, we see them increasing their uh, influence operations, both in the region, here in the United States, uh, not just in uh, neighboring countries um, in advanced democracies trying to influence our politics. Uh, we've seen their economic uh, engagement increase, often in coercive ways. They've certainly applied coercive tools against Taiwan in terms of manipulating tourist flow and things like that. Um, we've obviously seen their uh, the military developments, both just in terms of the scale uh, of their military uh, growth, but then also just even the last several weeks, the incre increased overflights uh, around Taiwan, the sort of provocative actions that they've been doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Japanese and other U.S. allies for quite some time. Um, and they're also uh, trying to engage in their own counter-narrative. Counter um, I've been struck again bringing in my, my work at the GMF. Uh, if you look at the broader debate about the future of the liberal and national order, uh, which Ashley also referenced, there's a, a Chinese response to some of these concerns that U.S. allies have, and uh, President Xi Jinping has very effectively used some of his appearances over the last year, uh, probably starting in Davos about a year ago, uh, and as well as his speech at the, China, at the Communist Party Congress, to try to lay out this narrative that uh, China is the natural inheritor uh, of, uh, or natural leader of the liberal international order if the United States is taking a step back that he is the more responsible actor that will support multilateralism, that will support an international framework to deal with certain challenges. Um, that may get dismissed here in Washington as a, a ridiculous argument. I can tell you, though, that in many quarters of the world, that actually is taking hold. Uh, it depends on people's uh, frame of reference, their priorities, but on certain issues, especially on issues like climate, or if you look at certain economic issues, there's actually an audience for that argument, and I think that's a troubling development that the administration needs to be careful about as well. I know they're not entirely comfortable about talking about the liberal international order and their interest in upholding it because they uh, don't like the framework to begin with, uh, the terminology, and I think they avoided that term uh, explicitly in the NSS. But there is an opening that is being provided um, to the Chinese, and uh, I think that's something that we need to be very careful about and perhaps uh, adapt our, our rhetoric to try to head off if possible. Um, 
In contrast to all of this, obviously, uh, Seth already mentioned that President Tsai, uh, since taking office, has laid out a series of policies that I think have more firmly embedded Taiwan in its, its broader region. Uh, I think there's a great potential from the new southbound policy and the economic engagement, the additional uh, trade and uh, even immigration uh, and visit, uh, visitors that uh, Seth laid out as possibilities. On the maritime issues, I've always been struck that Taiwan, despite the fact that uh, most of the Taiwanese claims line up with Beijing's claims, uh, the previous Taiwanese government, as well as this one, have gone to great lengths to try to pursue those claims in a much more productive manner, negotiating bilaterally with other claimants on things like fishing agreements, uh, avoiding the overly provocative actions of uh, the Chinese that we've seen continue uh, over the course of the last year, certainly. Um, and so, again, that's another area where I think uh, there's a, a stark difference. Um, and then you've also seen Taiwan expand its efforts to join multilateral institutions, to even engage in uh, operations well outside of the region, um, uh, participating in the coalition to counter ISIL, providing humanitarian assistance as part of that coalition. I mean, that I think uh, those are signs of uh, Taiwan's willingness to contribute to this broader concept and other groupings of nations who gather together to tackle common challenges. Um, so that's the, the potential that Taiwan, as a vibrant economy, a vibrant democracy, I think represent to any free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. I think the challenge is, and Ashley touched on a number of these already, um, I agree with Ashley that we can't make this entirely about US-Taiwan relations. Uh, it needs to be broadened uh, and brought into uh, these various groupings of partnerships that are now being formed uh, by the U.S. and its allies and partners in the region. Um, you know, these are not going to become formal alliances for the most part beyond the bilateral alliances that already exist, and they're probably going to be very informal groups of countries that get together from time to time to tackle different challenges, to discuss common problems. Taiwan is a national partner to include in those different groupings. I don't think, though, that unless we get some of our bilateral issues uh, and our bilateral hangups, quite frankly, under control, we're ever going to be able to broach the issue with some of our other partners in the region of getting Taiwan more fully integrated into that regional network. Um, the way I see it, I think the, the, the Taiwan Relations Act and things like the Six Assurances are unfortunately often seen in this town as representing uh, the, the kind of limits on what we can do rather than realizing all the opportunities that exist underneath that ceiling uh, for further U.S.-Taiwan bilateral engagement. Um, I, my hope was uh, early in this administration, certainly during the transition when the phone call occurred, that this would be an administration that would think in new and creative ways outside of the box uh, about what can be done uh, in the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. I think since the blowback from the phone call, obviously we've seen uh, a certain hesitancy from the administration, uh, and uh, I think that's, that's troubling. I think there's still a lot of potential there, and I hope as they think creatively about how to incorporate Taiwan into the uh, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy that we'll, we'll see a, a change in thinking there. Um, uh, you know, I think that uh, especially given ongoing Chinese pressure, uh, to push things like a fourth communique, 
to push some sort of U.S.-China understanding about Taiwan, doing things that are outside of the box that in the past may have been considered overly sensitive uh, is very important here in the next uh, several months, the next year, if we're going to actually make progress during uh, this administration. And part of that is decoupling Taiwan, which it should be anyways because of the six assurances, from our broader engagement with the Chinese on other issues. I mean, I think that's one major pitfall, which unfortunately the administration has fallen into over the course of the last year is, well, we can't do certain things on Taiwan because we need to work with China on North Korea right now. Um, I think that's very dangerous. And depending on how explicit those sorts of limitations are, again, it, it violates the consistent assurances we've made to Taiwan over time. So finally, I mean, what I would advocate that we should be doing um, beyond just laying out what we want to see Taiwan to do on the strategy, we should start inviting Taiwanese representatives to informal meetings with other partners. There are all these various groupings, some related to the Quad, others not in the Quad format. They happen at all kinds of levels, including the working level. Um, it doesn't always have to be uh, fully official. We can have Track 1.5 or Track 2 conversations. I know there are a few of these already going on. The more of those sorts of dialogues we have, I think the better, because we can figure out what issues represent the most potential to work together. Um, Japan, for instance, which obviously has been a driving lead, uh, leader behind this original concept, um, as well as in pushing the resuscitation of the Quad, is a good starting point, because Prime Minister Abe, my understanding, has very good relations with um, Taiwan. I think President Tsai and many others in, in Japan do as well. And so I think there's potential to build there. I think there's also a, a lot of potential between Taiwan and India that we could leverage uh, and uh, engage in. And part of this, too, is the U.S. does not need to be a part of every one of these engagements. We can just be encouraging our partners to work more with Taiwan, even bilaterally. The other piece, too, which uh, has been an issue that consistently I think uh, I engaged on in the Congress, with Senator Rubio and others, um, if we're going to be bringing Taiwan uh, closer to some of our regional partners in Asia, we also need to try to make progress on uh, Taiwan's status in multilateral institutions. Um, I think there's a lot more that can be done to raise uh, this issue. I think that's one area that this administration in particular is well suited to engage on, given the work that is done with the Israelis and some of the challenges that they've had in the UN system. Uh, it's an administration also that's willing to take the approach uh, that US assistance to countries is not necessarily guaranteed anymore. Um, that is leverage that we should have uh, with uh, certain partners as well as with institutions who might expect that the U.S. will continue writing checks. I think we need to have some tough conversations with certain uh, institutions that if they're going to uh, listen to the Chinese and try to prevent the Taiwanese from taking seats, especially on very technical institutions, that there would be re repercussions for U.S. participation in some of those. Um, and then the final piece, uh, or final two pieces, one is on the just broader diplomatic situation that Taiwan faces. Um, again, part of this is increasing Taiwanese engagement with U.S. partners and allies in Asia. Well, if Taiwan is in a defensive position, given the Chinese efforts to disrupt most of its diplomatic ties, it's going to be very hard to encourage new partners to engage more with Taiwan. And that's another area where I think, uh, even in the context of the One China policy, it's important for the U.S. to work quietly with Taiwan's remaining diplomatic partners, especially those, for instance, in the Western Hemisphere and elsewhere. We have very close relations 
to help send reassuring messages to convince them to maintain the status quo in, in those relationships. Finally, on the economic front, I completely agree with Ashley, and, and it's my biggest concern about whether this concept of a free and open Indo-Pacific will succeed in the long run, and also whether we will be able to prevent those uh, continued concerns about American retreat and disengagement from prevailing in Asia. We need a regional economic agenda, and even if it's not TPP at this point, uh, it needs to be a, a quickly announced series of bilateral agreements, and people forget that uh, how complex the trade uh, agreement process is here in the United States. The danger this administration faces is, quite frankly, they're starting to run out of time if they want to achieve anything on trade in terms of a proactive, even new bilateral FTAs during the course of their first term. They need to start now because of the congressional role, because of the notification requirements, and then obviously the time required to negotiate them. Uh, and so that is something that I think needs to be much higher on the agenda. But with Taiwan specifically, even in the absence of a regional uh, strategy, I think Taiwan and the bilateral economic relationship needs to be at the top of the list. Um, you know, eventually we need to be pushing for an FTA. There's other things that can be done in the interim in terms of bilateral investment treaty. Um, the other thing which I've thought about for quite some time, I saw yesterday that Liam Fox mentioned that the British might now think about joining TPP post-Brexit, which is interesting. Given that the US-UK FTA should not be politically sensitive here in the US, I think we should have a conversation with our British partners, given that we're going to be negotiating an FTA with them. They're going to have to be going through Asia, trying to figure out how what sort of trade relationships they can reconstruct post-Brexit. Maybe there are things we can be doing with the British in Asia, including maybe something with Taiwan. I think we need to approach this in a slightly different way, given the current political conversation, uh, and not just see the playing field the way we have um, thus far. And then one final, uh, more minor note, but a, a part of this as well is breaking through the long-term hesitation of many in the US government regarding official uh, visits to Taiwan by uh, sitting US officials or vice versa. Again, if part of our effort is to fully incorporate Taiwan into the broader strategy, that's going to require conversation, engagement, consultations. Um, none of that is outlawed or restricted by the Taiwan Relations Act. These are self-imposed restrictions that various administrations uh, have put on themselves. And uh, I think from a congressional perspective, you've seen a variety of men amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act. There's a lot of support for uh, more uh, creative thinking there about how to further our bilateral engagement with Taiwan. And so that's another area where there's uh, a lot of work that can be done. So I'll, I'll end there. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Um, I foolishly thought that going after Ashley and Jamie would make my job a little bit easier this afternoon. Um, and uh, while I, I would really love to reinforce everything uh, that both Ashley and Jamie had to say, um, I'll speak more briefly and perhaps a bit extemporaneously uh, to speed things up so that we can have an open discussion. Um, I think when we talk about the People's Republics of China's external ambitions, uh, I find it very helpful to begin with, with at least some operative understanding of what the regime is in Beijing. Um, uh, why? In part because I think if we're going to look at the history of the People's Republic of China, founded in 1949, 
there's, it's gone through three different phases, and there's always an effort to periodize uh, what these different ruling regimes in Beijing have, have meant, both internally and externally. But there was the first 30-year period under Mao Zedong, um, which ended largely in 1978 when Deng Xiaoping uh, set China on a totally new course. Deng Xiaoping needed to do that because Mao Zedong had ran China into the ground, uh, both internally. Uh, it was also threatened in a massive way from, by the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, to save China and to, in fact, save the Leninist Party state in Beijing, the Communist Party needed a new ruling formula to maintain its power at home. From day one, however, the goal of the Leninist Party in China has been to maintain its power. And when Deng Xiaoping undertook to reform China and open it up, uh, his ultimate goal, I think, was to maintain the party's control over China, its monopoly of power over China itself. But over the course of 30 years, through opening up and integrating, if you will, with the greater Asia-Pacific region, uh, Deng Xiaoping inadvertently allowed a lot of new kinds of contradictions to emerge within the Chinese body politic. A lot of new ideas began to uh, get insinuated into the Chinese political lexicon, into Chinese institutions. People began to entertain uh, very maritime notions about politics and about justice and about what makes proper and, and just political order, things like constitutionalism, liberalism, cosmopolitanism, capitalism. All of these concepts, which ultimately at the end of the day are deeply antithetical to the idea that a Leninist party state founded uh, in 1949 should maintain a monopoly of power over a country as diverse and as dynamic as China itself. I think in 2008, with the world financial crisis, um, there were immense shockwaves sent throughout uh, Zhongnanhai and throughout the Communist Party in Beijing. Um, there were, uh, uh, this had enormous effects uh, throughout the Asia Pacific, as we know. Uh, a lot of ruling regimes which were attempting to maintain their power felt uh, existentially threatened um, uh, by the shocks in commodity prices, among other things. And I think that there was more or less a conscious decision made amongst factions within the Communist Party to attempt to insulate their party rule against these kinds of economic shocks around the world. And what began in 2008 and that ultimately culminated more recently in the 19th Party Congress this past fall was an effort to detach uh, China itself from its deepening involvements in the larger maritime world, the liberal world order that, that Ashley had spoken about. And what that has entailed, among other things, has been not simply uh, the running of an enormously and very costly and very expensive uh, campaign of repression at home against advocates of constitutionalism, against human rights, the buildup of massive garrison states in Tibet and in Xinjiang and in China proper, but it has really ultimately uh, involved an effort to re-educate the way China uh, uh, thinks about the world, thinks about its involvements in the world, and then ultimately how it interfaces and interacts with the wider world. I spoke a bit about the domestic dimensions of that. Clearly, this has also had an external dimension, because why, since 2008, we've seen increasingly belligerent behavior in the form of military expansionism in other ways, both in the South China Sea as well as across 
the Himalayas and via Pakistan and through other places where, through which China has attempted to enlarge its strategic position and influence not only in the Pacific but in the Indian Ocean, as Ashley had mentioned. This, I think, is the new um, operating system of the new People's Republic of China. And again, I think at the core, the, the, the strategy is designed to maintain the party's monopoly of power at home. For a party and a regime that is so intent on preserving its power, the conspicuous reality of a Chinese-speaking democracy right next door has been always a, a longstanding problem. Um, and I think because of the developments that I've just described, the emergence of this new PRC3 regime, I think that we can expect it to become more of a problem for the ruling party in China. That is, uh, that Taiwan uh, is not simply a, a, a strategic uh, problem, perhaps, for China's external ambitions, its efforts, its desires to dominate the South China Sea, but the fact that here you have a viable, working, robust, commercial republic that is deeply connected to the wider world and that is uh, uh, perfectly at home uh, operating in that liberal world and is demonstrating an enormous amount of business and political and other kinds of sophistication. Um, the reality of that is an existential problem for a party state that, that every time they face a hiccup at home, uh, they know that there are people within the Chinese mainland themselves that can point to an alternative that points beyond one-party dictatorship and that understands that there is another potential future for the larger Chinese-speaking world that is, in fact, more viable, more attractive, and more just. Um, and that is, I think, if you, will, if you will, part of what helps to explain the sources of PRC's conduct in the South China Sea and with respect to Taiwan. With the 19th Century Party Congress, you've seen enshrined now this Belt Road Initiative, which has been the topic of an enormous amount of discussion here in Washington. That has emerged, I think, uh, as I sort of suggested earlier, the Belt and Road Initiative as a sort of new operating system, the new grand plan through which China is structuring its larger involvements throughout the world. Um, uh, it, it reflects, among other things, a desire to reshape the strategic space in the Pacific and in the Indian Ocean Basin in such a way that would be more politically and economically and morally conducive to the party state uh, and to the party state's efforts to maintain its monopoly on power at home. It's very clear that in this whole BRI effort, there's a very there's a clear objective in attempting to isolate and to wall off Taiwan. Why? Because of the threat that Taiwan and its particular model of political democracy poses to the party state at home. Um, and what we've seen as a consequence of this uh, has been uh, uh, a new development in what I've referred to in the past as uh, an ongoing uh, struggle for power, if you will, or struggle for the future of the Chinese-speaking world between the PRC in China and the ROC in Taiwan. It's now entered a new phase. Um, Taiwan has effectively attempted to get out of this 
effort by PRC to place, uh, uh, to isolate it diplomatically and economically through its southbound policy. And interestingly enough, this southbound policy was well in the works a long time ago with the ECFA agreement uh, over a decade ago, among other things, all of which was designed to create an opportunity for Taiwan to not only divest itself from the Chinese-speaking mainland, um, but really to begin to diversify its relations throughout Asia and to make itself more of a normal country within the larger liberal Asian, Asian order. Um, and we have, I think as Americans, um, and certainly as, as other countries that are interested in maintaining a free and open Indo-Pacific order, a real interest in seeing this, uh, this southbound policy um, succeed. Um, uh, uh, the efforts by the PRC to isolate Taiwan, um, uh, uh, if it does succeed, um, uh, would be obviously very bad. Why? Because the political character of Taiwan affects the entire strategic construction of, of the Western Pacific. Um, uh, but beyond that, Taiwan is making a real effort to make itself an indispensable component of this broader effort being led by Abe's government in Japan, to a certain extent here in the United States and by other regional governments to create a chain of democracies from the Pacific straight into the Indian Ocean. And we have a real interest in seeing that succeed. I think in order to do that, there are clearly investments that need to be made, as Ashley said, in helping Taiwan build up the defensive capabilities to deter Chinese aggression. In the South China Sea itself, there's time for a very frank discussion, both here in the United States, uh, amongst our public, um, but also with our allies about what is it that we, uh, as free and open Pacific republics, are, are willing to do. What are we willing to do and what are we prepared to do to maintain a free and open order in the South China Sea? One of the most important and crucial things, as Ashley had mentioned, in which Taiwan's southbound policies clearly aim to do is to connect the growing political and military competition in the South China Sea with what it is that we're seeing in the Indian Ocean, particularly with India. We do ourselves a massive disservice of not making an, a real effort to connect those two theaters. Um, uh, and I would anticipate much, much more of an effort going forward to, to bring those two together. But beyond that, I think we need to look a little bit more clearly at, um, at China's OBOR strategy. It's very clear that from a Chinese, from Beijing's perspective, trade policy is very much a function not simply of commercial self-interest, but also of strategic policy. We've gotten out of the habit of thinking that way here in the United States. Uh, um, as evidence of that, just look at the conversation that we had about the TPP. I mean, we talked about it oftentimes in Congress and elsewhere as being an Asian Pacific corollary of NAFTA, when in fact there was a strategic rationale behind that initiative. But we lost the language. We lost the habit of talking about geoeconomics and understanding the geoeconomics is a fundamentally important tool for shaping actual strategic realities on the ground, and more importantly, political realities on the ground. 
And that, I think, is something that we can learn in, here in the United States by studying the way in which Taipei has put together its southbound policy, the way in which Tokyo has put together its efforts to create a free and Indo-Pacific. There, they're availing themselves of new economic thinking and economic initiatives, which can teach us quite a bit in our own effort to pick up now that TPP has been, well, it was dead by the time it reached Congress, and then Trump uh, also killed it again afterwards. Um, but we need to resurrect some kinds of new geoeconomic thinking here in the United States in order to compete more effectively going forward. Stop there. Eric, thank you. Jamie, Ashley. Uh, we have time for questions, I'm happy to say. Um, are there any? There's one over here, if you'd wait for the mic. We'll be there in a moment, and if you could identify yourself and organization and to whom here on the panel, including me, your questions addressed. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Russell Shaw with the Global Taiwan Institute. Uh, my question is for Ashley. This is, uh, and thank you all for an excellent set of uh, presentations. Um, Ashley, in a report that you co-authored with Robert Blackwell in 2015 on U.S. grand strategy um, towards China, uh, in it, you assess that uh, Beijing aims to avoid major confrontation with the United States for the next decade, so from 2025 then, up to 2025. Um, I found that observation very interesting. Um, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chief, also in a Senate testimony, I believe in a testimony back in September, also commented that he believes that uh, or thinks that China will uh, pose the greatest threat to the United States by about 2025. What is the significance of this date? Um, what should we expect in terms of China's behavior uh, leading up to and after 2025? Thank you. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put too much stock in a precise date. Uh, but the point we were trying to convey is that for the moment, China still sees itself as relatively weak compared to the United States and the alliances that the US has in Asia. And that a strategy of prudential behavior is still a sensible one for China. So what does prudential behavior in this context mean? I think prudential behavior means pushing the envelope on the issues that matter to Beijing, but doing so in ways that are short of provoking open conflict. And I think that as long as China perceives itself to be second best compared to the US, uh, this will still remain the dominant strategy. And so if you look at Chinese behavior in the South China Sea, when you look at Chinese behavior with the rest, with the rest of uh, US partners in Asia, it's certainly been assertive but it's not been blatantly assertive in the sense that China is not looking for an open fight. My expectation is that once what the old Soviets used to call the correlation of forces changes, I think the restraints on China may slowly atrophy as well. And China would become much more risk acceptant than it is now. And so the important point, I think, is less the date whether it happens in 2025 or 23 or 27 is in a sense, you know, who knows. But the point is there will come a transition when China feels 
capable enough and by extension bold enough that it doesn't really have to meter too carefully what the consequences of its choices are. But I think for the foreseeable future, China will continue to be cautious because what it wants are cheap wins. It doesn't want wins that provoke system-wide conflict or conflicts that can you know, derail China's gradual growth and capabilities. Yeah, and on that point, I'd like to uh, add something that all three of our panelists today have either said directly um, or implied, and that is the question that hangs over. That is the the question that hangs over. Uh, again, this was implied here, or I'll state it directly. The uh, the current administration's uh, follow through with some of the uh, uh, admirable parts of the national security strategy that it announced. Um, because, the, again, referring to Ashley's remark here about the correlation of forces, um, that correlation is between two opposing forces. And so it, it, it is not uh, a foregone conclusion that uh, Chinese growth will be, uh, military growth will be unmatched um, by American military growth. I, I don't see that happening right now, but. 10 or 15 years from now is a long way. So I'm not uh, pessimistic and I'm not optimistic, but I am waiting to see what happens. If I may just add one more thought to that. What it also means is that the US actually has many more opportunities than we give ourselves credit for. That this period is a period where you know American advantages are still in place. And therefore, one can pursue policies that are more self-regarding than we sometimes pursue, because we are so afraid that we might end up provoking crises that would cost us dearly, that we sometimes fail to see that, you know, the U.S. actually wields some very powerful cards. And preemptive capitulation is often our bigger enemy than crises at the end of sensible policies. Other questions? Let's see. Here. Hi, uh, Abe Sholsky. I'm here at Hudson. Yeah, actually. Um, if you talk about an Indo-Pacific strategy, if you just think about the map, it certainly puts the focus on South China Sea because that's the link between these two areas. And everything you've said so far suggests that becomes more and more important. And it would seem to me then an Indo-Pacific strategy, if we had one, would have to focus on how to counter Chinese moves in the South China Sea to make sure that the South China Sea remains an international waterway, essentially, in, in not only in law, but in fact. And um, I guess it led me to some questions. One is what what steps, I mean, can we take to, to do this? Because fundamentally, we haven't really responded except in symbolic ways to what the Chinese are doing, and they're actually building things. And then it also raised the question with respect to Taiwan, is there anything more that can be done 
to leverage the fact that Taiwan technically at least has the same claims. I mean, it has, I believe, still has its one island in the in in the area, but it it it, it does have at least theoretically uh, an equal well, similar claim to the PRC. I mean, what, whatever it is, the history is the history of the sense both governments. So, uh, I was just wondering what how would we address that because it seems to me this would be absolutely crucial if you're going to have something called an Indo-Pacific strategy. Well, I'm sure Ashley has something to say. I, 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 yeah, I completely agree with your question. I guess I would go even further. I mean, you said we've responded symbolically. I worry we've basically acquiesced at this point uh, to a lot of the ch recent Chinese actions. Um, yes, now we're doing more regular freedom of navigation operations, which is fantastic. But that's really just a tactic, uh, and it's not actually, uh, has it doesn't have any hope of actually rolling back the significant progress the Chinese have made, even just over the last year, honestly. Um, and that's one area where I am quite worried, honestly, because I, and I think it's on the administration's radar, but partly because of the focus on North Korea, you saw very little high-level commentary from this administration during its first year in office about what was going on in the South China Sea. And during that period, the Chinese were slowly racking up quiet gains. Uh, and, and that's troubling. If you think back to 2016, I worked for one of the Republican presidential candidates. People actually in Iowa were talking about South China Sea during the Republican presidential primary. Uh, it was something that would come up on the campaign trail. It was at that level in the national consciousness here in the US where and it was on the front page of many newspapers, different uh, satellite imagery of, of recent uh, Chinese you know, uh, buildings on certain islands. And so I think the fact that we're not even talking about it most of the time is in incredibly troubling uh, and is a de facto acquiescence to some of the recent gains. In terms of what can be done, um, what some of us on working on Capitol Hill had looked into in the past to navigate Senator Rubio uh, I think with Senator Gardner introduced legislation that was included targeted sanctions against Chinese entities that uh, most of them are state-owned Chinese construction, military construction companies doing business on these islands. Um, at least starting to talk about that, I think, as a first step. Uh, Secretary Tillerson, during his confirmation process, was asked about this in writing, and he responded that he would be open to consideration of the, that sort of tactic. I think he then referred to something along those lines a few months ago, uh, which was one of his only comments, I think, about the South China Sea in an interview with the Wall Street Journal. So that's something I think that at least should be uh, explored if this activity continues. Um, another thing that some have advocated, which is a little bit more controversial, is if there are US partners and allies that are uh, pursuing their claims in a responsible manner, perhaps the US should think about actually wading in and choosing uh, a side and endorsing some claims. Again, not everyone agrees with that approach. Um, that's an area where some US senators, some Republicans, for instance, have endorsed Japan's uh, claim to the Senkakus, uh, partly because of the uh, responsible way in which Japan has gone about those. And then the other thing I've uh, always been supportive of is on some of our security guarantees, uh, there has always been this uh, uncertainty about whether the security guarantees apply. So a similar issue with the Senkakus, there's been some discussion, I guess, about our commitments to the Philippines. Uh, and I think the more we can clarify and back up our security guarantees in those cases where we have ally, treaty allies 
who uh, have claims, um, I, I think that is also an important way to send a clear message to Beijing that uh, their increased pressure on this issue is unacceptable. I agree with everything Jamie said. I'd add two, two thoughts to that. Our silence is Beijing's biggest ally. Uh, because I think the Chinese do feel embarrassed if they become uh, the target of a coalition of people who complain. And so to the degree that we are silent about what is happening in the South China Sea, it provides them all the cover they need to continue to do what they want. And so if the US is serious about the developments in South China Sea as threatening a global maritime regime, then I think we really need to sort of raise the profile of the issue. And in every forum, the functional forums, the political forums, we need to call out China as violating you know, norms of, of behavior. The second thing, and this is more you know, consequential, is that we need to seriously be thinking about how we arm and equip our allies in the region to complicate China's military planning. Because if you are a PLA planner who thinks, you know, I'm going to have certain advantages by building new airfields and so on and so forth, and if that results in countervailing consequences where uh, regional neighbors now are slowly acquiring capabilities to hold these targets at risk, then maybe it affects your cost-benefit calculus. At any rate, I don't think we should be leaving China with the sense that this is for free. We can build these facilities with absolutely no consequences. You know, the USS Stennis will come once every six months calling, but the rest of the region has acquiesced. I think we need to seriously start thinking about what is it we can do with the Filipinos, with the Vietnamese, with anybody else who has stakes in the region, including Taiwan, uh, to see what we can do in terms of, you know, changing, uh, changing the calculation here. Other questions? Let's see. Sir, you're in the front row, second row. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm a Washington correspondent of the Liberty and Happy Science Group. Uh, I have been wondering about the uh, role of ASEAN, so because ASEAN was established in 1967 in response to the threat of the communism uh, at the time uh, in, in the middle of the Cold War. And uh, so uh, what kind of role could ASEAN play in, uh, in terms of protecting Taiwan's benefits or free trade or democratic ties, uh, anything like that? Thank you. Let me take a crack at that. I think there are two questions in one. Uh, one is what role can ASEAN play in terms of maintaining an open Indo-Pacific? That's one question. And then there's the specific question of what role can ASEAN play with respect to Taiwan. Um, on the first, I think the challenge that ASEAN faces in the here and now is a challenge of internal unity. Because what the Chinese have managed to do is essentially to split ASEAN and to pick favored partners who then are used to subvert 
the creation of an ASEAN consensus. And so ASEAN has to learn the lesson that if it doesn't hang together, they will hang separately. That's not a lesson we can teach them. It's a lesson they have to learn for themselves. So that would be my first response, that we need to empower ASEAN to sort of recover its internal unity, because if it doesn't have that unity under the rules of the organization, essentially it'll end up being paralyzed. The second has to do with the United States. ASEAN looks stronger than it does only when it is convinced that the US is in its corner. And if there is any perception of American wobbliness, then ASEAN simply by itself cannot stand up to Chinese power. And so if ASEAN has to become a vehicle for checkmating Chinese ambitions, it can be a vehicle only to the degree that the United States, both in speech and in word, demonstrates resilience and presence. And unfortunately, we have not exactly done our part uh, to make that happen. On Taiwan specifically, I'm actually more pessimistic because ASEAN is far too weak, and I do not see ASEAN as being in a position where it's willing to take on China on an issue relating to Taiwan. So the best you can get with ASEAN is what Jamie suggests, which is deepen uh, interactions with Taiwan at the levels of low politics, uh, develop consultative mechanisms, and work to bring Taiwan into international organizations that have to do with functional areas. And that's probably better for Taiwan anyway, because if Taiwan has to be protected at the level of high politics, you've got you need stronger actors to play that role, and not ASEAN. And I think the only strong actor in this context is essentially the United States, with Japan, uh, India, maybe Australia, uh, providing some sort of some sort of backup. Can I just add? Um, I, I completely agree with what Ashley said. I, I think we need to realize too that the Chinese have shown that they're already mastering the ability to undermine consensus. Uh, multilateral groupings in a way that most of the other problem countries that the U.S. in particular has been dealing with for quite some time have never either uh, had the patience to or the willingness to go about it in such a diplomatic manner. If you think of the way we deal with the Russians or Iran on a variety of issues, um, they occasionally will try to peel off one country or another, but they're just, they have not been as effective as the Chinese have already shown themselves to be in uh, with an entity like ASEAN. I've even seen it in the EU-China policy. The Chinese, through their strategic investments, have gotten to the point where there are certain EU countries that they can go to uh, because of that bilateral economic relationship and have them shift votes uh, in UN fora on issues like human rights or other, or other issues. And that's something I know many uh, people who work on Asia and Brussels are quite concerned about and are trying to come up with ways to deal with. But that's something that's only going to get worse over time. And because of that, I think that's why, for me, the quad is so important and various configurations built around the quad uh, to a certain extent. I think we need to reconstruct a core of countries that are so like-minded on these issues that it's much less likely that the Chinese are going to be able to make inroads in terms of pitting us against each other. Um, and again, it, it can be a very flexible format. Uh, it, I actually like the idea, I think the Japanese have talked about this too, of trying to bring uh, the, the French and British into a quad plus uh, format on certain 
uh, strategic issues. And so I think we actually need to start from scratch to a certain extent, bring in a group of very like-minded countries, and they can then work together and engage other partners who may be more on the fence, may be uh, in need of certain uh, capacities uh, that we can and our partners can work together to provide. Uh, I think that's a better approach than relying on uh, organizations like ASEAN uh, to start with. Other questions? Let's go to this side of the room here. Thank you. Like, I'm, my name is Katsuya Watanabe. I'm a university student of, of Japan. I mean, I mean, uh, I'm a student of university, Japanese university, KO. Then my question is this, like, what the U.S. Expe expect Japan to do, like, especially regarding on regarding the Taiwan and more broadly, like, about like, in the Pacific strategy? For a while there, um, when there was a perception that the United States was retreating or withdrawing from the Asia-Pacific, uh, there was a number of people in Washington who started referring to Prime Minister Abe as the leader of the free world. Uh, um, and uh, I, I think that there is an expectation in the United States that Japan will continue to play a proactive role in shaping a peaceful and stable and liberal and open order in the Indo-Pacific, as indeed it has. Um, the question is, of course, how to operationalize that. And that's a question that's now being asked in Tokyo and also here in Washington. I think uh, there needs to be some, some real frank conversations about how to make uh, a lot of the rhetoric that politicians in Tokyo and Washington use to describe our aspirations for the future Indo-Pacific, how to make that real. And that requires a frank conversation about what it is we are prepared to do, um, not just in terms of what strategists and analysts who sit in rooms who talk about this stuff, but what, in fact, our polities are willing to sustain over time. Um, uh, that's a conversation that I think Japan needs to have internally as much as we Americans have to have internally. Um, uh, and it's high time for that conversation, I think, to go forward in Japan and also here in the United States. Well, and if you're looking for specific recommendations, I can offer one, um, and that is that uh, Taiwan has been trying very hard to build an indigenous submarine, a diesel-electric boat. Japan has the technology. If it would share it with Taiwan, it could advance not only Japan's interests, but Taiwan's at the same time. Making the investments in the military capability is key, but as Ashley had said, in a, in a place in Asia like ASEAN, the challenge is how to maintain sovereignty in the face of new, these new pressures which are being brought to bear. And that requires maintaining political unity within ASEAN, which has historically, of course, been called the Balkans of Southeast Asia. That's a difficult thing to do. But the best way in which free and open societies can be sustained is when they're allowed to remain in the light. And, and the efforts that Japan has made to promote not necessarily a direct, uh, a, a direct alternative to what 
China has been doing through OBLR, but to create an alternative in the form of the Quality Infrastructure Initiative, for example, is one practical undertaking that I think the United States has a real interest in aligning with, um, and that Taiwan is a real interest in aligning with. Why? Because the goal is not simply to acquire by working through various kleptocratic elements in different countries to acquire clients, but rather to make investments uh, in a free and transparent way that are, you know, that, that help to abet and ultimately um, help to foster the maintenance of sovereign regimes. Um, this is part of this kind of geoeconomic thinking, and uh, which is fundamentally required to shape a free and open strategic Indo-Pacific. Uh, strategic space throughout the Indo-Pacific. More of that kind of leadership from Tokyo, I think, is is very much expected here in Washington. We have time for another question here. Uh, it's time for this side. Sir? Well, thanks very much for the panel. I'm Mike Fonte. I'm the director of the Democratic Progressive Party's mission here in Washington. I want to make two points about Taiwan's role. One is this southbound policy that it now has is very much engaged not just in investment and trade, but in cultural and educational operations, which I think is part of knitting together the region a little bit more. The other point is this cooper global cooperative and training program framework, which has a memorandum of understanding between the United States and Taiwan to put on a series of programs. It's involved everything from uh, dealing with mosquito-borne illnesses to women's empowerment, et cetera. And I think those are two programs which could work together very much in terms of the Indo-Pacific strategy on the positive side. And I think those are, those are valuable. They're, they're ongoing programs. And on the new southbound policy, there's been real engagement already and progress. And the global cooperative and training framework already had, I think it's eight to 10 programs on a variety of issues which could add to the development of a real positive strategies that we've been talking about. Can I just uh, add something to that? I mean, I, I've been struck over, uh, it's, as the administration's been getting organized, getting staffed up, I mean, I think one gap has been over the last year a lack of uh, clear conversation between the U.S. and our partners, not just Taiwan, honestly. Unfortunately, Taiwan probably falls by the wayside just because some of the issues in the bilateral relationship, but even with our Indian partners, with Japan, about issues like OBOR response. And that is a huge area of opportunity. I think there are people now in the administration who have spent most of the last year really focused on North Korea, who are finally devoting some time and energy to thinking through what the U.S. Uh, response is to OBOR. But that, uh, having those conversations bilaterally in different groupings, including Taiwan, to talk about how the southbound the policy fits into that. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and again, I think the administration realizes that that's important, but it's been something I remember visiting India last February as a Senate staffer. First questions were, what is the U.S. response to OBOR? Unfortunately, there was no <laughs> new U.S. policy. I don't even know that today we still have a clear U.S. response to OBOR. Japan obviously has been thinking about this a lot, Taiwan as well. And so the more that we can have those conversations, with our regional allies and partners, I think the better, because if we don't move quickly, obviously event uh, the Chinese actions will shape the playing field. And the other thing that results, if you look at what the Japanese government is now doing, 
despite the fact that they've come up with some alternatives, there is some talk in Tokyo about the fact, well, we may need to end up going along with OBOR, uh, but OBOR under certain conditions, partly because they don't see necessarily the U.S. leading a clear alternative. Uh, and so I actually think it's important that we begin those conversations as soon as possible. Well, uh, I would like to thank our panel for their remarks, their excellent presentations, insights for coming today. Um, and uh, I'd also like to thank you all for, uh, for joining us. Um, it is a cold day, and this is a, it's a rather warm audience uh, group here, and it's a large one. Um, I hope you'll uh, stay tuned, as they say, to the same frequency, because uh, this discussion does not end here, and I expect there will be more in the future. Thank you, and Happy New Year as well. Thank you.